Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, which contain the first two of God's Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, as we continue with our study of the book of Exodus this morning, as you just heard, we come to the second of the Ten Commandments that God gives us in this book. And this commandment, at least for me, I think is easily sort of the oddest of the group, if that makes any sense. Uh, And the reason that I say that is because what the second commandment prohibits is the creation of and then the use of images, pictures, objects in the worship of the true and the living God. And I'm just going to say it. I don't think that's a problem for a lot of us, at least physically. Do you agree with that? In other words, I'm not sweating it out as your pastor going, man, I just know that they're using objects and little idols and figurines. And I know that when they go home from church, they, they get a fresh block of wood and they carve out another one. They, you know, I'm not worried about that with you guys. And so I think it's easy for us to come to this particular commandment and to think, why, why do we even need to talk about this one? Like, you know, couldn't we have lumped it in with the first one, saved a little time, because I'm all about that, to be honest, and then just moved on to the third one. How is this relevant to my life, Tom? And yet, as I hope you get to see, it's hugely relevant for a very simple reason. And that is that we don't just create little images, we don't just create pictures, we don't just create perceptions and conceptions, we don't just create idols, if you will, with our hands. We do it far more frequently and far more creatively with our hearts. We do it all the time. I mean, the reality is that a lot of us create, all of us at different times, create a concept of God, a perception of God, a picture of God, an image of God in our heart that does not incidentally reflect the fullness of the true and the living God at all. And here's why we do it. We bow down and worship to it because we've created a God for us that's a little bit more safe, or maybe a lot more safe, at least as we define safety, than the true and the living God. Or we create a God that's more comfortable, or we create a God that's more accommodating, or we create a God that we think that we can probably control and frankly make our servant as opposed to the other way around. And so we create an image of God and we dress him all up, if you will, in the clothing of the true and the living God. But it's not the true and the living God at all. And in the process, we end up worshiping and serving what is effectively nothing and cutting ourselves off, guys, from the love and from the power and from the mercy and from the wisdom and from the peace and from the joy and from the grace and from the goodness I could keep going of the God who really is. We gain nothing and we lose everything. So kind of relevant then. I want to look at it again in its, in its context, which is Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, where again it says this. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am 
the Lord your God. And I love that because as Mason talked about last week, and I thought, by the way, he did a great job. This teaches us something, not only about God, but it teaches us something about all of the Ten Commandments that he's about to begin to give us here. And I say that because God doesn't come to his people and say, okay, guys, so here's the deal. I am the Lord, but I'm not your God. Not yet. So here's how you make me your God. I'm going to give to you my Ten Commandments, and then if you keep them according to my standard, which is a whole other issue, then I'll consider becoming your God. He doesn't do that. Just like he doesn't come to them when they're enslaved in Egypt for 430 years and say to them, okay, I am the Lord, not yet your God. We'll get to that. But I might consider delivering you if you'll keep my commandments. So I'm going to give to you my law, and then if you keep them according to my standard, again, that's a whole other topic. Maybe then I'll deliver you and I'll bring you out into the wilderness and, you know, I'll bring you to the promised land and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It doesn't work that way. He comes to these people trapped and enslaved and he delivers them from slavery and death in the land of the dead. It's Egypt. It's where the mummies come from. He brings them out into the wilderness to the foot of Mount Sinai. He appears to them on the mountain, fire and smoke and lightning and thunder and all of this stuff. And then he speaks to them. And he says, I am the Lord your God, who has already brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And look, guys, now that I've delivered you from bondage, and now that I have declared you to be what you have been all along, which is my people, I'm going to give you my law for several reasons, not the least of which is that when you experience the deliverance that is ours through our God, you fall in love with him. You can't help it. And what do you do for those that you love? We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Man, you do whatever you think might please them, no matter how crazy it might sound. Don't you? But he also gives us this law to keep us free. He frees us, and then he says, you know what, I don't want you to go back there. I, I realize there are all kinds of enslavements that are out here. I'm going to give you my law to keep you free. And he gives the first commandment here. He says, you shall have no other gods before me, which doesn't mean you can have all the gods you want as long as I'm number one. It, it means before me means literally in my presence. And since God is present everywhere and all of the time, effectively what he's saying is you can have no other God but me. And you say, well, you know, why? I mean, is God egotistical? Is God insecure? Like, I mean, what is God worried about? He's worried about us. God is the singularly greatest thing, the singularly greatest being, the singularly greatest object, if you will. He is the only object of ultimate value in the entirety of the universe. How could it be otherwise? And I want you to think of the dignity in this. He has made you to take your little life, which is more precious because of its brevity, not less, and to devote it entirely to the singularly greatest ultimate cause there is, and that is the devotion and service and worship of Him. You know, as I've said in the past, would you have had him make you to do something less? But here's what he understands when you do something less. He understands that all of these other things that you devote yourself to, that you serve and bow down to, all of these gods, every god requires sacrifice. Every god requires devotion. Every god requires you to follow them and makes you his slave. God's like, look, I want to free you from all of that, and I don't want you to waste your life. So let me give you a law, and the law is no other gods but me. It's a good law. 
But then he gives us the second commandment, and he says this. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved or graven or manufactured image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And not only shall you not make those things, but you shall also not bow down to them or serve them. For if you do, then guess what your kids are going to do? And then guess what their kids are going to do? And then guess what their kids are going to do? They're all going to do the same thing. And they're going to suffer the same consequences. The same enslavements. God tells us something about himself. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I want you to think about that. Because that's not born out of insecurity either. That is born out of passionate love for you. It's remarkable. We do staff devotions. We have like a prayer time every Friday morning. And... Um, and we talk about personal worship. You know, what have you been saying in the passage of Scripture in this past week? Uh, Sam Kastensmith said something about this, and I thought it was brilliantly insightful, which is not unusual for Sam. He's just brilliantly insightful. He said, you know, if a, if a man has a wife and she has an affair and he doesn't care, if he's not jealous, then he doesn't love her. And that applies here. God is coming to you and he's saying, listen, I made you for the single greatest cause in all of the universe and that also happens to be me, God. <laughs> and I know what happens to you when you go out here and you chase other gods in this world. They enslave you, they entangle you, they ensnare you, you get caught up in addiction, spiral out of control. I love you so much that I am fiercely jealous for you, passionately so. I'm not insecure. I'm on fire for you. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who what? It's a strong word. Of those who hate me, knowingly or unknowingly, and prove it to be so by not keeping any of my commandments, but showing steadfast love, so don't miss this part, to thousands of those who love me and who demonstrate that love for me is the point by keeping my commandments. As we talked about two weeks ago, Jesus comes to us and he says, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. And we said, well, why, Lord, will we, we keep your commandments? Because you'll want to. That love for me will cause you to want to please me. So he's calling us to keep these commandments, but maybe you're thinking, all right, you know, that sounds nice and all, but I mean, I'm not sure that I can keep a commandment that I, I don't completely understand. So exactly what is it that the Lord is saying here? Well, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, go home and, you know, take all your pictures off the wall. You know, all the kids' pictures, get rid of those. All of the dolls. Can you imagine the trauma of this that your kids have? You're going to have to throw away? Good grief. I'd never go home. I mean, that would be devastating, right? You need to bring in a counselor to deal with us just over that. All the little figurines you've got, put them on eBay. This is not the point. He's coming to me and he's coming to you and he's saying, okay, so here's the deal. Um, don't create or craft either with your hands or with your heart an image of me that you dress up in my clothing, but that you make, frankly, for self-serving purposes, even though you might not consciously work it through that way, because I'm a God that you feel safe with if I'm that or comfortable, or accommodating, or whatever. Guys, don't do that. Because what you'll end up worshiping is a God that isn't me at all. And you'll get nothing. And you'll lose everything. And that's true, first of all, because to worship the true and the living God by means of some image is to deny God's freedom. And I think to understand that, 
you really need to go back to the ancient times of Moses and understand what these ancient people thought they were actually doing when they made these idols and then bowed down and worshipped to them. Because they did not believe, guys, that the idol that they made with their own hands was actually the God himself. That would, in fact, be crazy. But they believed that the God would inhabit the idol that they made with their own hands, much like your soul inhabits your body. Get the idea? So if they had the physical idol, then they physically, in some sense at least, also had their God, which meant that they could do things with their God, like take him anywhere they wanted to. Hey guys, we're going to war tomorrow. Jimmy, you're up. You're going to bring God with you because he might be helpful out there. Get the idea? We'll take him with us into war, or we'll put him in a temple and have a cover charge or something to go in and see him, or or we'll create, and they did this. All kinds of rituals and sacrifices and certain prayers that you would pray to try to take this God and manipulate this God and get this God to do for you what you wanted the God to do for you, to make the God your servant as opposed to the other way around. And look, we don't do that with our hands. I get it. But I think we do it all the time with our hearts. We create for ourselves a God that we think we can control. And, and that's why we say things like, Lord, you know I did my personal worship this morning, so you're going to have to give me a good day. Is that the way that it works? I have gone to church 14 times in a row. I'm pretty sure that nobody outside of the pastor has come to church 14 times in a row. So heal my child. Lord, look at all that I'm giving, and look at all the people I'm serving, and look at all the prayers that I'm praying, all of the devotion that I'm doing. Help me get a you know, good closing on this business deal. Whatever the case might be, it's a, it's a God that isn't God. Meanwhile, God's going, hey, um, hang on a second. First of all, that is a denial of my freedom. Like, I am the sovereign Lord, all-powerful, everywhere present, all-wise, all-knowing. I don't bend my will. I bend everything and everyone to my will, and that ought not to be threatening. That ought to be embraced by us. Why? Because he's all wise. He's all knowing. His will is best. No question. But it also denies my gospel. And the reason I say that is because through the gospel, God, through Christ, his life, his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and all that he accomplishes for us through that. In that, guys, through faith in Jesus, we gain God Himself. And in God, we have everything. So it denies His freedom. But then secondly, to worship the true and the living God by means of some image is to deny His majesty, or to put that more simply, it's to deny who He really is and actually what He's like. And I made a whole list of ways that we do this, just different examples. And so, for example, I think we do this every time that we say something like, my God, keywords, would never judge anyone. And I'm just going to put it out there and say judgment is an uncomfortable topic and I'm the last person you need to convince of that. Seriously. I mean, most of the conversations that I have with people about judgment, I don't have sitting down having lunch with a friend, you know, who knows me and therefore gives me the benefit of the doubt, who kind of knows where I'm coming from and, you know, will give me some faith, if you will, who can ask me questions because it's a dialogue. Oh, I think what you're saying is this. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's actually what I... Most of the conversations that I have about judgment, I have in a one-way monologue with hundreds of people at a time, some of which at least I don't know at all. So maybe no benefit of the doubt. 
I get it, that it's uncomfortable in a unique sort of way. But when you say, my God would never judge anyone, you're not talking about the God of the Bible anymore. Because he does. Because he must. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. Heck, we even want him to judge certain people. But he is also loving. But he is also gracious. But he is also merciful. But he is also good. And he has demonstrated his selflessness through the sacrifice of Jesus himself, through whom we gain pardon from the judgment that must come. It's a remarkable thought. But when we say that, we've dressed our little God up in God's clothing, but it isn't Him. Now, how about this one? My God doesn't really care what I do or how I live, which is actually, as I thought about it, kind of a double idolatry, and I'll give you some examples, okay? And I say that because, for example, if you idolize money, not if you have it, if you idolize it, and there's a difference. So what is the difference? What I'm saying is, when you idolize it, you're thinking to yourself, okay, God is actually not enough for me, but then I also need money. So God is not enough to satisfy me, make me feel safe, secure, and all that kind of stuff. I also need this, and as a result of that, what do you do? You turn your life into the pursuit of money. That's idolizing it, and that is the first level of idolatry. The second level of idolatry comes when you create an image of God, and you dress him up in God's clothing, but it's not an accurate image. You create an image of a God who allows you to do that with complete impunity. Meanwhile, God's going, hey, hey, hang on a second. That God is not me. And I will not allow you to do that with complete impunity. Why? Because that is an empty well. For your own good, you are going to go through life if that is your God pursuing more and more and getting thirstier and thirstier, not more and more satisfied. And then you're going to get to the end of your life and go, that's it? That's what it was about. I think it's true when we idolize sexual freedom as well. If that's your God, then that's what you pursue with your life because, well, that's your God and that's the first level of idolatry. The second level is when we create for ourselves an image of God that allows us to do that with complete impunity. Meanwhile, God's going, hey, wait a minute, sex is powerful. Sex is sacred. It's kind of a big deal. I'm the author of it. I sort of know a few things about it. And you are wounding your own soul, whether you realize it or not, and trampling your conscience into obscurity. If you're looking for love, God's saying, come here. Companionship is here. Healing is here. Forgiveness is here. He's not denying us what our soul hungers for. He's saying, no, 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 don't try to satisfy that hunger in a way that only brings you harm. Come and find satisfaction in me. If you idolize yourself, which we all do uh, in a whole variety of ways, I think we do this as well. And we end up living our lives constantly comparing ourselves to other people so that we can feel good about ourselves. Isn't that the way that it works? And you love that person, don't you? They're just awesome to be around. It just makes you feel so great. And then you create a little image of God who's dressed up in the clothing of the actual God, but isn't the actual God, who's angrier at the sins of other people than he is at the ones that you struggle with. Uh Uh-oh. Meanwhile, God's perfectly holy and he's going, hey, look, all sin is an offense to me. But I forgive all of that freely through Jesus. It's remarkable. Joy Davidman says this. She says, The real horror of idols is not merely that they give us nothing. The real horror of idols is that they take away from us even that which we have, and what we have is a majestic God. 
He is a majestic God. So lastly, to worship the true and the living God by means of some images to deny what he's given to us already through Jesus. Because when you flip over to the New Testament, what you find, for example, in Hebrews 1 verse 3 is that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and here it is, the exact imprint of his nature. Go a few pages back to Colossians. Chapter 1 verse 15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Go forward a few verses. Verse 19 there, it says, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and not just to dwell, but to dwell for a particular purpose. And so what is that? He just, just keep reading. He says, and through Jesus, to reconcile to God himself is the idea, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace between us and God by the blood of Jesus' cross. And then he speaks to those who have received that peace, who have embraced that peace, and he describes us. He says, and you who were once alienated from God and hostile in mind toward God is the point, doing evil deeds and crafting images of God dressed up in his clothing but not him at all, who allowed you to do that with complete impunity? He says, look, you he has now reconciled to God in the body of flesh by his death on the cross in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, which very simply means that if you're looking, if you want to know what God looks like, not physically, is he 5'8", is he 6'3", how much does he weigh, none of that. If you want to know what God looks like in his nature, in his character, in his essence, the Bible is saying, well, then here's Jesus. Because in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwelt bodily in human flesh. There he is. God, the invisible God, made visible come not just to you, but for you. To do what? To rescue you from all of your idolatry at the expense of his own life. And to satisfy your soul by giving you himself. He's pretty cool, I think, this God. And he cannot be captured in an image. That's the point. How do you capture the infinite in a finite little thing? Whether you make it with your hands or whether you make it with your heart. And so God is coming to us, jealous for us through his passionate love. And he's saying, look, guys, I'm going to give you a law, okay? Don't do that. Because that God you worship is nothing and gives nothing. And you miss me in whom you have everything. So two questions and I'm done. First of all, have you come to God through faith in Jesus? In other words, have you realized that you've made a mess of things, that there's things in your life that need to be addressed, that you need forgiveness for, and that you can't fix and undo and go back in time and rewrite? It doesn't work that way but you've come to Christ, the one who has come to do that for you. And you've brought that burden to him, past, present, and future, laid it at his feet, and received the forgiveness and new life that only he can give. Have you done that? So that's the first question. But then secondly, if you've done that, then between that day and this day, have you forsaken Jesus? Unconsciously, I'm sure. Really. But have you forsaken the real Jesus in favor of some image of Jesus now that you've created in your heart that maybe is a little safe, doesn't ask quite as much, a bit more accommodating? Dressed up in his clothing, but it's not him. 
Because if you have, then this is a wonderful day for you to forsake that idol because it will bring you nothing and to re-embrace the one in whom you have everything. So think about those things before you come to the table. Okay, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And we thank you, by the way, for your word, which, which describes him for us, which brings him to us, for your spirit, Lord, who opens our eyes and our ears, who awakens our hearts to the passion that you have for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would work that miracle in all of us today, that we would sense the presence of God in this place, that we would realize that He is a God who is jealous for us out of His love for us, that His intentions are kind, that His plans are pure, that He is gentle and tender, that He calls us to Himself out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, out of peril and into safety, out of love. And I pray that you would give us faith by which to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.